I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody. I hope that you are all doing so, so well. Before I get into the topic of today's episode, or topics, I should say, I wanted to remind you all that Patreon is happening, and if you haven't joined, now is definitely the time to do so. On March 2nd, I'm going to be covering the text of the book Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston. And in the first episode for Patreon that was released last week, I go over the author Zora, her story, her, you know, studies in anthropology, how that led to a career in writing, how she went about writing the books. And it was very, very fascinating. And I feel like the first episode, you know, rings true to a lot of other more feminist fave episodes. So if you are a fan of those, the first episode is definitely reminiscent of that. But joining now is a really good idea because it's going to give you enough time to be able to interact with me and let me know what you think of the book and give me anything that you want me to add to the episode that's coming out on March 2nd because I would really, really love your participation in the book club. So while you're reading the book, go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist where you can tell me all of your thoughts, feelings, give me your questions, all of those sorts of things. Eventually, when I have the time, um, I want to set up a website with a calendar that's going to give you all of the upcoming books, give you a place to be able to add those thoughts and questions and things like that. 
But in the meantime, I am going to be relaying information to you via the episodes, but also on Instagram. So if you don't follow the Instagram page at Angry Neighborhood Feminist, you should definitely do so to be able to stay on top of all of the different things that are going on with the show. I haven't posted this on Instagram yet, but I did mention it in the mini episode. I'll be sure to make a little mention of it when this episode is posted. But I have decided what I wanted Women's History Month's book to be, and that is Women Talking by Miriam Toes. It is a absolutely amazing book from what I've read so far. I'm not super far into it because I take so many notes and highlight things, and it's just taken me a while to get through it. But it's really, really wonderful. I think it's a really important story. And it also was made into a movie that came out this year. So I feel like that'll also kind of add to the anticipation of wanting to read the book before you see the movie and all of that kind of stuff. I I actually think I might watch the movie if I can and discuss it at one point in one of the episodes to kind of see how well they interpreted the book and things like that. So I'm really excited. I'm really, really loving all of the work that I'm putting into the Patreon episodes, and I really want you all to give it a listen. So if you haven't joined Patreon yet, go ahead and click on the link that will be in the show notes for this episode, but it's also in the link on the Instagram page in the bio. There are two tiers available. So for the $5 tier, you can join the book club and everything that comes along with that. But if you want to give a little bit of extra and join the $9 tier, you also will get ad-free versions of these episodes because I know that many people skip through them, so on and so forth. But if you want to have just me talking to you and no interruptions, go to the $9 tier and that will help you out. But I also wanted to mention, because I've been getting more personal ads lately, how important that is for the show as well. So I really encourage you to use any of the codes that I'd given you to either purchase Nutrafol or use BetterHelp. I have another really great sponsor coming up and it really helps me out a lot when you interact with those companies by using my codes, so on and so forth. So All right. I feel like that was a lot of boring business stuff that I needed to get out of the way, but it was very necessary. So I want to get into today's topics, and we are in the second week of celebrating Black History Month, and I wanted to get a little bit intersectional for y'all this week. So listeners of the show probably know that one of my favorite feminist icons is Marsha P. Johnson. I I just love her strength, her humor, and her willingness to always be herself, even in the face of persecution. I've also always been really inspired by the trans and non-binary community, and I'm also really interested in the intersections between that topic and blackness. So I figured that Black History Month was a really great time for me to dive into that intersection a little bit more and learn more about the history of these people, because I know that it didn't start with, you know, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson or anything like that. Black trans people have existed forever. And I wanted to find, you know, the history as far back as I could and learn about some of the people from those times to get a broader picture of how far we've come, how far we haven't come, and where we need to get to. The Human Rights Campaign affirms that the LGBTQ plus history and Black history are inextricably linked. The intersection of Black and trans liberation in the U.S. can be traced back to centuries past. 
There has been an epidemic of trans people, but particularly black trans people, facing disproportionate amounts of violence, and they are more likely to be murdered than any other minority group. Their deaths are underreported, and most of them go unnoticed and are not remembered. Knowing how big of a problem it is in 2023, you can imagine how rough it has been for those who came before. Today, I want to show how anti-blackness shapes the very way we understand gender itself. The three women that I want to discuss today all exemplify incredible bravery and what it means to be authentically yourself. The first woman I want to talk about is Mary Jones. I'm going to tell you the stories of these women in order of oldest to newest stories. And Mary was born on December 12, 1803, and was assigned male at birth. She is the first known recorded trans person in U.S. history, and her story shows us how black trans people were treated in the early colonial days. She was born in New York City, but wasn't allowed education as a child. She had never learned to read or write and signed her name only with an X. As an adult, she served in the military and spent time in New Orleans before returning to New York City. During the day, Mary would be seen wearing dapper men's attire, working her day job, but once the sun goes down, she would don her favorite dress and wig and be herself. During the day, she worked as a waiter and cook. By night, she worked as a sex worker. Mary did more than just sleep with the men who picked her up. She was also notorious for lifting the wallets of her clients. On June 11, 1863, a white man by the name of Robert Haslam solicited Mary for sex. When he got home, he realized his wallet was missing. In its place was another man's wallet. He also realized that the $90 he had had was missing. Haslam tracked down the man who owned the wallet and tried to get him to go to the police with him. The other guy refused because he didn't want to reveal the fact that he had been visiting sex workers, let alone a black sex worker. This was probably how Mary got away with what she did for so long anyways. This definitely wasn't the first time that she stole a John's wallet, but it seems to be the first time that anyone didn't give a fuck enough to be able to come forward and be like, yes, I solicited this person for sex and she stole from me. At this point, I'm not necessarily sure if they even knew that they were having sex with a trans person because I don't really get into this because I don't really want to, but apparently Mary would use a prosthetic vagina when she was doing sex work, so it's very possible that she was so good at hiding the genitalia that she had that these men really had no idea what they were doing. Also, we're not specific on what the sex acts were. There might not have been any penetrative sex anyways, so who knows? But it's also not like it was okay for men to just come out and say that they were, you know, soliciting sex workers at this time either. So this Haslam guy really just gave no fucks and was like, you stole from me. That's wrong. I'm going to the police and telling them what happened. Mary was then arrested by an officer who went undercover and was pretending to solicit sex, and she was charged with grand larceny. When she was arrested, the officers found Mr. Haslam's wallet. She was immediately detained and sent to the nearest watch house while they continued to search and investigate. A reminder, these officers believe at this time that they have arrested a cisgender woman. Once they searched her property, they patted her down, then gave her a physical examination. It was during this examination that they discovered that Mary had external male genital organs, and the whole investigation, and the whole case, changed. From this moment on, the reports and records state mostly comments about Mary's gender and dress. 
There is no record stating whether Haslam got his money back or whether the search was successful. Instead, they reported what they discovered during the physical exam. The reports are graphic and detailed, and I feel Mary's shame and humiliation in such private matters being discussed so openly. Trans, non-binary, or cis, no one wants others talking about their private parts in the media. The media and public also ceased referring to her as a woman and began using male pronouns to describe her and used the name assigned to her at birth, her dead name. She appeared in court on June 16, 1836, wearing a dress, a wig, and white earrings, no longer waiting for darkness to be herself. The audience treated her like a zoo animal, yelling hateful things at her as she entered the court. One person even ripped off her wig. She pled not guilty to grand larceny and testified that she had never seen Haslam before in her life. On the stand, instead of being questioned about the crime in which she was charged, they asked her about her choice to wear women's clothing, while laughter erupted in the courtroom. From OutHistory.com, The spectacle of a cross-dressed black man and the victimized Haslam, the Herald reported, provided the, quote, greatest merriment in the court, and his honor, the recorder, laughed until they cried. She testified that she had, quote, always worn women's clothing when in the company of other black people. She said she was compelled to wear women's clothing because the women around her always encouraged her, saying that she looked so much better in those clothes. As I mentioned, the testimony focused primarily on Mary's choice of clothing and her identity more than it was about the theft. This testimony is rare in that sense, but it's incredibly rare to see evidence of a trans person speaking with such honesty at a time when the term didn't even exist yet. Her gender identity was seen as a larger character flaw, so of course she was a thief too, right? This was the root of the whole cause. Mary was found guilty and was sent to five years in Sing Sing State Prison, the maximum punishment, and was sentenced to work hard labor. Just to note, Sing Sing is a men's prison, and Mary was also made to wear men's clothing. The media, like the courtroom, also cared to discuss Mary's choice of attire rather than the crime itself. And she became a pretty big story, big enough that a political satirist named H.R. Robinson created an image of Mary from court, dressed in a white dress, white earrings, a wig, and women's shoes. The portrait is crudely titled, The Man, The Monster. But there's nothing monstrous about the look of this woman. If you didn't know the story behind it, the title would make no sense, as you were just looking at an 1800s black woman with good taste. The image was put up for sale and it circulated for many years. I'm sure you've actually seen it. I'll post it on Instagram along with the other examples from the episode. The media saw Mary as a black man who violated gender, sexual, and racial norms seemingly to defraud white men. Slavery at the time of this trial was only abolished in New York for a decade and the public still saw black bodies as being inferior, hypersexual, and as tools of labor. After her release from Sing Sing, Mary would spend the rest of her life under surveillance. She was always being watched, rather it be by authorities, reporters, or the general public. The records show that Mary became increasingly recognizable to law enforcement. She would go on to be arrested many more times in New York City. She was usually arrested for vagrancy and disorderly conduct, and she was always in women's apparel when arrested. Sometimes she would be arrested again immediately upon release. Through police reports, we found that Mary spent a total of seven years in lockup between 1842 and 1858. 
She was usually put in some of New York's most notorious prisons, like Sing Sing, the Tombs, and another place you may have heard of from a past episode, Blackwell's Island. And if you want to know more about that, go listen to the Nellie Bly episode. Strangely, though, Mary decided to never leave town. There was no internet, and she wasn't so famous that she couldn't have started over somewhere else. Historians were curious about this and found that Mary most likely stayed in New York due to the relationships she had there. She was really close to the other women who worked at the brothel and had a community of other black people there who loved and accepted her. They were also able to uncover that she had at least two significant relationships in her life. There was a white man named John Williams, alias Joseph Lyness, a known thief who was arrested with her in 1844. And there was also Betsy, a fellow black woman, to whom she was married in 1855, according to census records. Mary herself said that she, quote, could get a good many white friends who could help her out of the scrape, but that she would not call on them because she, quote, believed in the honor among thieves. The laws in this time for LGBTQ people were strict and harsh. Sodomy, which at the time was understood as sex between two men, held a life sentence until 1828. Recognition of trans individuals didn't come along until the 1920s when a German sexologist coined the term transvestite, which we now know does not give a full explanation for the existence of being transgender. Because of the labels and the perception of sodomy at the time, trans and gay people were considered perverts. This would make Mary's public life incredibly difficult, but something I love about Mary is that she never changed. She never let the ridicule, the harsh jail time, or anything else get in the way of her being herself. She wanted to stay with her friends in New York, be Mary, and be left alone. The fact that she never did what the public wanted, start wearing men's clothes, shows me that this is a woman of strong conviction and a healthy level of spite. The next person I want to talk about was the first person that I discovered in looking for people in my research. This is Frances Thompson. Frances was also a trans woman who went down in history for a testimony given. She was born into enslavement and was assigned male at birth. By the age of 26, she was living as a free woman in Memphis, Tennessee. She lived fully as a woman in Memphis, keeping her face tightly shaved and wearing brightly colored dresses. Her testimony would come out of her experience in the Memphis Massacre of 1866. So for context of Frances' story, let's talk about that a little bit. In 1862, Memphis became an epicenter for those who were freed from slavery. They set up camps near the Union forces, and many of them joined the U.S. Colored Troops when recruitment began in 1863. By 1860, in Shelby County, where the events would take place, there were a reported 45,000 enslaved or formerly enslaved people living there. More and more began to flock to Memphis at a steady rate until the time of the massacre. The population of Irish immigrants was also flourishing in Memphis at this time. From 1850 to 1860, the Irish population grew from 9.9% to 23.2%. And I promise it's important to the story. That's why I'm mentioning Irish people. At first, the Irish experienced discrimination, but by 1860, they occupied most of the police force and had gained many elected positions in city government, including the mayor's office. This was also partly due to the fact that formerly Confederate veterans were prohibited from running for office. Good. The events occurred in the early stages of Reconstruction, when there was much unrest over what to do with the formerly enslaved population. 
Also during this time, the country was trying to bring the Confederate states, such as Tennessee, back into the United States and work toward abolishing slavery. Officials from the Freedmen's Bureau reported that police in this time, but really any time in history, were arresting black soldiers for minor offenses and they were being treated brutally. Police were used to interacting with enslaved black people, and they resented seeing black men in uniform. Incidents of police brutality mounted leading up to the massacre. The day before, rumors had been generating that black soldiers were organizing their revenge. This would have been due to the black soldiers being pushed out of the army a few days earlier on April 30th. They were able to remain in the city for several days while they awaited discharge pay, but in the meantime, the army retrieved all of their weapons. Luckily, a few of them had their own firearms. Something I never thought I would say. Growing racial tensions had been growing for quite some time, but the incident that set off the massacre was this. A white police officer had attempted to arrest a black veteran, and about 50 other black men came to his defense when they saw it was happening. The men were all members of the 3rd U.S. Colored Artillery Regiment, the ones who had just recently been disbanded. They fought the officer, trying to prevent the man's arrest, when a shooting broke out. The first victims of the massacre were all black soldiers killed in this shootout, but the violence quickly spread to the surrounding area, and people were attacked, and their homes, schools, and churches were destroyed. The black population was targeted as well as the white northern missionaries who came to Memphis to be school teachers. The U.S. Army tried to intervene, telling the 3rd U.S. Colored Artillery Regiment to retreat to Fort Pickering just outside the city. The regiment agreed to this, but that didn't stop the terrorizing of the citizens still in the city. Memphis police officers and firefighters openly participated in the violence and looting and refused to help the citizens end the fighting, nor did they help put out the fires set upon the burning homes. The violence went into a second day because Mayor John Park refused to request state or federal assistance. Can you imagine the mayor being like, yeah, I'm on the side of the cops and firefighters who want to burn it all down. Good luck! When it reached its third day, General Stoneman declared martial law and sent both black and white troops into Memphis to reestablish order. By the end of the day on May 3rd, Memphis's black community had been demolished. There were five reported rapes and 285 people were injured. Over 100 houses were burned to the ground and an estimated 46 black people were killed. No arrests were made. Within a month, there was a congressional committee there to investigate the event. Though they had hundreds of interviews with those affected by the massacre, the committee was controlled by anti-radical Republicans, so the conclusion of the investigation was tainted. Just a reminder that this was before the Republican and Democratic parties switched their morals. These people were against Reconstruction and the freedom of formerly enslaved black citizens and would do anything they could to sway the narrative in their favor. There was particularly a lot of strife between the Irish and the black citizens of Memphis at this time, as the Irish were also looking for manual labor jobs, and there was, apparently, some tension there. So in the reports, the committee claimed that the Irish Southerners were the major threat, instead of blaming all white Southerners. It was, however, mostly non-Irish whites that participated in the violence, though there were members of the police who were Irish that were involved. There was another very similar event that took place in New Orleans in July of 1866, just a few months later, just a few months later, which played out much like the Memphis Massacre. 
During the events in Memphis, Frances was living with her housemate, Lucy Smith, at the time. Was living with her housemate, Lucy Smith. Their home was targeted in the attacks. The men broke into their home and demanded that Frances and Lucy make them something to eat. They obliged. After they ate, they demanded to sleep with the women. The women said they weren't those kinds of girls, but the officers didn't seem to listen. The group of men, together, raped these two women and robbed them. There were seven men. Two of them were police officers. Francis and Lucy and a total of 170 men and women testified before U.S. Congress during a committee to document the events that occurred during the massacre. Frances is considered to be the first trans person to ever testify before Congress, making her also the first black trans woman to testify as well. Historian Channing Joseph recounted her testimony, saying, Frances was one of the linchpins in getting the political will together to pass legislation to protect civil rights of the newly emancipated black people, and also to bring political will behind Reconstruction after the Civil War. The aftermath of the massacres in both Memphis and New Orleans in 1866 led to the repudiation of President Andrew Jackson and let the era of Reconstruction begin. Here is Francis's testimony. In her testimony, she says that she sews for work as well as doing washing and ironing. She said that she had been born enslaved and raised in Maryland where, quote, all our people but mistress got killed in the rebel army. She refers to herself as a cripple and walks with a pronounced limp. She also testifies that she has cancer in her foot. Here's what occurred in Frances's own words from the records of her testimony. Between 1 and 2 o'clock Tuesday night, seven men, two of whom were policemen, came to my house. I knew they were policemen by their stars. They were all Irishmen. They said they must have supper and asked me what I had and said they must have some eggs and ham and biscuit. I made them some biscuit and some strong coffee, and they all sat down and ate. A girl lives with me. Her name is Lucy Smith. She's about 16 years old. When they had eaten supper, they said they wanted some women to sleep with. I said that we were not that sort of women, and they must go. They said that didn't make a damned bit of difference. One of them had laid hold of me and hit me in the side of my face, and holding my throat, choked me. Lucy tried to get out the window when one of them knocked her down and choked her. They drew their pistols and said they would shoot us and fire the house if we did not let them have their way with us. All seven men violated us too. Four of them had to do with me, the rest Lucy. She was asked if she was injured. She said that she had a high fever for days afterward. She testified that the men had also stolen clothing and taken about $300 total. She clarified that she believed the men were all Irish, saying there was not an American among them. Her housemate Lucy testified that she was in bed when the men arrived. She also noted that two of them were cops due to the stars seen on their clothing. Lucy stated, they tried to take advantage of me, and they did. Lucy was very badly beaten. In fact, she said she was so bloody after the first man violated her that the second man said, Oh, she's so near dead, I won't have anything to do with her. She was so injured from the incident, choked so badly that her neck was severely swollen and she couldn't speak for weeks. We also learn in her testimony that she refers to Frances as Aunt Crutchy due to her disability. Cue newsies just to break the tension a little bit. 
Hey, Gretchen. Hey, what are you hanging around here for? <laughs> I had to. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I needed that little, uh... Need a little break from the seriousness of that story. But uh, before I go on with the rest of the story, let's take a really quick commercial break. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm back. Along with Francis and Lucy, four other women who were brutally raped and attacked gave their testimonies. Their names were Mary Walker, Molly Davis, Ellen Brown, and Lucy Hunt. Unfortunately, no criminal proceedings for the massacre would ever happen because the U.S. Attorney General at the time, James Speed, ruled that the actions associated with the events fell under state jurisdiction, but the state and local officials refused to take action, so there was nothing to be done. It is thanks to the Freedmen's Bureau who investigated the crimes that we have the records and affidavits of what happened. Afterwards, the black community fled the city as the Freedmen's Bureau struggled to protect them and keep them safe from Memphis's hostile environment. Ten years after her testimony, Frances was arrested for, quote, cross-dressing, and her trans status was discovered by the opponents of the Radical Reconstruction, who tried to use this information to discredit her earlier testimony and the civil rights movement as a whole. Frances was sent to prison and was sentenced to work in a chain gang, where she was forced to wear men's presenting clothing and was brutally abused. Shortly after her release, she suffered from dysentery and died. I know, it's the most brutal ending to this story, especially because she got through that entire testimony and through most of her life with people believing that she was, as she presented, a woman. And it's so unfortunate that we had laws at this time that were against something as silly as wearing clothing that didn't align with the gender you were assigned at birth. 
The fact that this probably led to her sickness and death is absolutely devastating to me. Okay, the last person that I wanted to discuss with you all is Lucy Hicks Anderson. We're going to fast forward a little bit to 1886 when she was born. She was born and raised in Kentucky and was assigned male at birth, but from a very young age made it known that she was a girl, not a boy. Her parents took her to the doctor, who incredibly advised the parents to allow her to live as a girl. So they did. Wow. She began wearing dresses to school and renamed herself Lucy. I'm always so fascinated and in love with the stories behind how people chose new names for themselves in general, and I relate to it in some small way. I was named very much after my father, a person who I really want no sort of association with, and his whole side of the family hates my guts, so carrying around their last name feels like heavy baggage. She left school at 16 to help support her family and began doing domestic work. She moved to Pecos, Texas, where she worked at a hotel, then moved to New Mexico. There, she met her first husband, Clarence Hicks, in 1920. Once married, they moved to Oxnard, California, in Ventura County. There, Lucy quickly became an active member of the community, and she was very well-liked. She became invaluable to the town once she became a chef. She was so good that she would go on to win awards for her cooking. She would make and cater food to all of the wealthiest families in town, meaning the whitest families in town, and she made a fortune. She made so much money that she was able to donate much of it to charities. She also had another, more unconventional business venture that she started with this new large income. She bought an old boarding house and turned it into a successful brothel and speakeasy. She was able to get away with this because so many people in Oxnard felt so fondly of her as well as I'm sure many of them attended the establishment and liked Lucy, so they weren't going to say anything. However, things got tricky, no pun intended, sometimes I just write these things, when she was arrested for selling liquor. This was prohibition, after all, leading to her arrest. Luckily, she was immediately bailed out by the town's leading banker who needed her to cater a big dinner party he had for that evening. That's how influential Lucy was. She and Clarence divorced in 1929, and she married a former soldier named Reuben Anderson in 1944. They lived together happily in Oxnard for about a year, until things went south. A soldier in the Navy claimed to have caught a venereal disease from Lucy's establishment, which led to an investigation. After an initial search, the officers also did physical inspections of the women working in the brothel, including Lucy, who was 59 years old at the time. When they discovered that Lucy was trans, she was arrested for the charges of perjury for, quote, lying on her marriage license and fraud for receiving money as the wife of a former soldier. She was brought to court where she gave the testimony of all testimonies. She stated in court, I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. I have lived, dressed and acted just as I am a woman. She and Reuben were both sentenced to jail time, but Lucy was given an additional 10 years of probation. She was also legally prohibited from wearing women's clothing. On top of that, Reuben and Lucy's marriage was also made invalid. When the couple was released from jail, they were told that they could no longer live in Oxnard, so they moved the short distance to L.A., where they led a quiet life until Lucy passed away in 1954. This story tugs at my heartstrings, as it is a love story. 
The fact that we as human beings struggle to understand love between different types of people is baffling to me. Trying to see one marriage as more valid than another's doesn't compute in my head. I can only hope that for the final years together in L.A., though quiet, they were able to live together as themselves. But how sad is it to see this once wealthy socialite fall into oblivion due to her genitalia and gender identity? What a shame. Since the times of Mary, Francis, and Lucy, we have seen many transformations in society's understanding of race, gender, sexuality, and their intersections. But still, the idea remains that bodies subverting sexual and gender norms are threatening, as well as holding on to the idea that black bodies are dangerous. In 2022, at least 38 trans people were fatally killed, but this number could be much higher due to the lack of reporting. Also in 2022, 25 anti-LGBTQ bills have been enacted, including 17 specific to anti-trans laws across 13 states. This number has already increased since the start of 2023, and new anti-LGBTQ laws seem to be enacted all the time. Black trans people in particular are targeted. The unemployment rate for black trans people is 26%, which is two times higher than the overall sample of trans folks and four times the rate of the general population. 41% of black trans people have experienced homelessness at some time in their lives, This is five times higher than the rate of the general population. 34% report a household income of under $10,000 annually, which is not a livable amount, which compares to 15% of trans folks of all races, four times greater than the black population at 9%, and eight times the general population as a whole at 4% of that amount of income. Black trans people are also more likely to be affected by the HIV virus, with more than one-fifth of the respondents to one survey, or about 20%, saying that they lived with the virus. Most devastatingly, almost half of the black trans community will attempt suicide at some point in their lives. The statistic is 49%. That is ridiculous. But the way that black trans people are treated in our country is the cause of this. Black trans folks are vital to our society, and the fact that so many are ending their lives short means that we don't get to experience their greatness. Luckily, there is one positive statistic that I find again and again each time I research the intersection of the LGBTQ and black communities, and that is that most black trans people who are out to their families report that coming out only strengthened the bond in their family and that they receive support. I feel so incredibly thankful that I was able to learn about these three women this week because I feel like whenever I go farther and farther back into history, it just shows repeated examples and mistakes that we've made over and over again between that time and now. And I feel that it's so important to tell these stories that are so not known because it shows the prevalence of these epidemics and the length of time that this community has experienced such disproportionate levels of persecution. The fact that we have become so much more educated and we have learned so much more, yet there is still this inherent bias in especially our law enforcement and in people of authority, but I think in so many people in general 
that think down upon both the black community and the trans communities. And there seems to be this understanding of danger, especially when it comes to trans people right now. I know that there's a difference between someone being a drag queen and being trans, but the right doesn't know this. And there are so many arguments going on in the news right now about whether or not, you know, drag shows or drag story time and things like that are appropriate for children. And it's so upsetting to me because I feel like, you know, if we look at it from a broader perspective, there are so many things that sexualize heterosexual relationships. I mean, look at every Disney movie, every kid's movie, every story in general, you know, there is so much, you know, there's so much emphasis on hetero love. And the fact that there would be other people represented in the world is really a dangerous thing to the right's idea of, you know, quote unquote, family values and things like that. And they truly see the people who choose not to dress in accordance to the gender assigned to them at birth as being these dangerous types of people, which truly makes no sense to me, especially in a time where I feel like fashion and style is becoming less and less gendered. I mean, we don't look at a woman wearing pants and make fun of her for that anymore. So why are we making fun of a man in a dress or a man who likes to wear makeup? Just because you're a girl doesn't mean that you have to enjoy makeup. Look at me. And just because you're a guy doesn't mean that you can't enjoy makeup. It doesn't make a difference. And if you don't identify as being a girl or a guy, do whatever the fuck you want. You know what? No matter what you identify as, do whatever the fuck you want. You're not hurting anybody. I love that we have these examples, though, especially for the sake of representation, because I think that people, the more they learn about people in history that look like them or are like them and identify the same way that they do, I feel like it really is inspiring and gives purpose. And I feel like it shows that this fight that we've been on for so many years, and I say we, you know, me only as an ally and an activist, but, you know, the black and trans communities truly have been fighting for these rights for centuries and centuries. And I hope that we can take away from these stories lessons in ways that we can still look at our own inherent biases, that we need to be seeking out more news stories of Black trans people. We need to be celebrating their accomplishments and their achievements as well, instead of just reporting on the negative side and the deaths of these people. And I just felt very moved by everything that I've read this week, and I feel a little bit more educated as well. And I hope to do my best to continue moving forward to learning to be more and more anti-racist, but also learning to be more and more inclusive to people who are not cisgendered. So to finish off today's episode, I just want to say, be you, be authentically you. It is hard in the face of persecution, but in my opinion, the payoff for the betterment of humanity is worth it. And I want to thank everyone in our history who has done just that in order to make our lives better today. And to finally conclude, I want to remind you, Black trans lives matter. All right, 
that is another episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you learned a lot and enjoyed learning about these women as much as I did. If there's anyone that you want me to discuss in the future for a future feminist faves, please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. I truly, truly love your suggestions. And it's also funny how many times you'll suggest something that I'm either already planning or is on the list. And it's just really nice to know what you want to listen to so I can give you what you want, you know? I'm not going to give you the whole spiel again, but I would really love for you to join me on Patreon. I think this Angry Feminist Book Club is going to be just the most fun, exciting thing ever. So please click on the link in the show notes or go to the link in the bio on the Instagram page to join in on the fun there. Also, I want to remind you all, I haven't gotten a new review on Apple Podcasts in a while, and I would really, 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 really appreciate a new one. So if you haven't done so already, please go over to the Apple Podcasts app, leave a five-star review and a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. Then if you have Spotify, you can go over there and rate the show as well. It is the best way to show your support for the show, and I really, really appreciate all of the help that you give me. All right. I love you all so much. Thank you for listening to another episode. That's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of the Go Kid Go Network. Do your kids love wacky worlds, superheroes, and inventing? Of course they do. That's why our shows Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow are set in Pflugerville, the nonstop fun and adventure universe where imagination, creativity, STEM, and positive role models abound. Join the Pflugerville fun by searching for Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.